0: Now to God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The words of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you were here last Sunday, that scripture passage should sound familiar to you because it's the exact same one. That wasn't a typo. That wasn't an accident. Uh, It's supposed to be that way. That was the plan. Because over, or starting last week and today and over the next couple weeks, we're going to work our way through what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And what does that look like in our lives? How do we put that into practice? What do we, what can we focus on to help us grow in our love for God um, this is also a topic, as I mentioned last week, that I hope ties in well with the season of Lent. So if you're observing Lent, um, you know, I hope this provides some, some, relevance, some extra relevance to you. Uh, because that's really what Lent is all about. It's about drawing nearer to God. It's about loving God in a deeper way. So by way of quick recap, remember first that when Jesus responded to the scribe's question, he was quoting first from the Shema from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And last Sunday, we focused more specifically on loving God with all of our heart. Loving God with all of our heart means that we love God with all of our inner being. It's devoting the, the deepest part of ourselves exclusively to the Lord. It's a call to honor the covenant relationship that God has with us and really to obey the first commandment. That we would have no other gods before God. What we're, what we were really talking about is, is worship. As I've mentioned before, what worship means is worth-ship. It's what you give the most worth to in your life. And so that's what we focused on last week. And the two principles that we talked about as far as putting things into practice to help us grow in our love for God with all of our heart was Simplicity. This world and our lives get cluttered, they get busy. And the more complicated life gets, the more we fill our lives with just other stuff. And the more divided our hearts become. But to love God with all of our heart is to love God with an undivided heart, as Psalm 86 says. The second thing we talked about was generosity. This outward expression of our heart and our love. That if we want to know what we worship, what we uh, give the most worth to, we should evaluate what our treasure goes to. We need to remember that God is a generous God. And to love God with all of our heart is to reflect God's own generosity to us by living out that generosity for others. So growing a habit and character of generosity, it's, it's really a, it's a wonderful kind of a, a thing that you can almost kind of see and experience in a very real way, how you can express your love for God and your love for others. This Sunday, we're going to focus on loving God with all of our soul. So first, let's talk about that big word, soul. Uh, to begin... We're going to talk about what it means just in the Bible, both in the Old Testament Hebrew and then New Testament Greek, but I'm going to keep this pretty succinct so it's not going to be a whole, you know, language lesson for you. But first, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is often translated as soul is nefesh. You know, I have to remember that. But the idea with nefesh, the literal meaning of it is neck, throat. You think That's kind of a weird word to tie in with your soul, this idea of soul being your neck or your throat, but it's also used in a bigger way to describe one's life. And if you think about it, life kind of happens through the neck. Everything we eat and drink, the air that we breathe happens through our throat, through the neck. Even today, if you're taking a CPR class, one of the first things they, they teach you to do is to check for breathing. You know, can you see or hear or feel them breathing? Is their chest rising and falling? Is there breath in their lungs? So this idea of nephesh, it's one's life breath. It's what defines one as a living being, and it represents the life. We see this clearly in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now that word, those last two words, living being there, that's actually in the Hebrew, the word nephesh, Meaning that the man became a soul. The man became this living being. The life breath of God was in him. And it, was, it made him alive. In the Greek... Greek being a little different. I mean, there's a whole cultural movement that's different in in just kind of the Greek world. And the Greek word that's translated as soul is souke, or it kind of looks like psyche a little bit. But we get the, the English word psychology from that word, or actually two Greek words. Psychology, the first part, psyche, which means soul, and ology comes from the Greek word logos or logos which can mean knowledge or study of. So psychology is literally, from the word of it, the study of the soul, which is going to be what we're doing this morning. So whether you knew it or not, when you got out of bed this morning, after the time change, you're going to be a psychologist this morning, okay? So you can add that to your resumes if that helps. But in the Greek language, the psyche is closer to what I would venture to say most of us understand uh, one, what one's soul is. It's this inner being, this inner life force. It's kind of hard to describe in a way because it's, it's non-physical, it's immaterial, but it's the part of a person that gives them life. And there's a lot more that can be said at this point regarding this idea of body and soul, especially in the ancient Greek world, but maybe a topic for a class at another time. I just want to stick this morning with our focus, which is what does it mean to love God with all of our soul, with all of our life force? There's another word in the, the Bible that's used almost interchangeably with the word soul, and that's the word spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. It's where we get like, the word pneumatic from or pneumonia. Uh, it's, they're words that are translated as wind or breath or spirit, so even this word spirit has that same connotation with nefesh, that it's something that is, is breathing through us. Well, whether you choose to look at soul or spirit or psyche or nefesh, all these words are trying to get at kind of this one central idea of one's inner life. So last week, again, we talked about what it means to love God with all of our heart, and I focused on our devotion To God, if I was going to sum it up in just one word, our devotion to God. And so as I thought about, well, what does it mean to love God with all of our soul? I think a good way to view it is in terms of our will. That is that determining force motivating our decisions and our actions. Loving God with all of our soul is loving God with all of our will, our willpower In theological terms, we talk about having free will. That's something that everyone's kind of familiar with, free will, meaning that we have the freedom and the ability to choose how we want to live our lives. So we have the choice whether we want to live according to God's will and under God's authority and under God's blessing, or we can choose to live under our own will, under our own rules or our own self-interest, so from the very first pages of the Bible, there's this dichotomy that's of wills that's presented before us. There's a fundamental choice that we all have to make, and it's a choice we make or we have to make all the time. It's not that we make it once and we're set. Every day when we wake up and we have life and breath going through our lungs, we have to make this choice. It's essentially the same one that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, the choice to either live under God's rule and blessing or to choose to be like God serving our own appetites our own desires, our own self-interest living according to our own will or as a uh, psychologist might say, that's an egocentric way of life it's me centered, it's I centered and it's here we ought to be pretty vigilant, very vigilant because the sin of our ego it's incredibly invasive it's down to the the deepest parts of our hearts and even wraps itself around our souls the apostle paul speaks numerous times about this conflict between our desires of the flesh or the will of the flesh and the desires of the spirit or the will of the spirit of christ for example in romans 8 those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on what the flesh desires But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have set their minds on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And again in Galatians 5, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. so that you you are not to do whatever you want. So the big question for each of us is, does our will serve our own ego and self-interest, or is our will seeking to serve the will of God? It's a choice, as I said, we are presented with each and every day and in each and every moment, really. Jesus shows us His example and his own prayer to God. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he is arrested and tried and crucified, Matthew's gospel records these words of Jesus' prayer. It says, In going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To love God with all of our soul is to choose to live our lives in conformity and in submission to the will of God. So now, kind of the, the part two of the sermon. Well, how do, we, how do we foster this in our own lives? How do we foster a love for God with all of our soul? What disciplines, what practices ought we put into place? And so I've, I've selected four for us this morning and, and I'll kind of roll through them. But the first it's a practice of solitude. Now, that word might already bring up some, some feelings. Some of you might hear the word solitude and you're like, man, that sounds like a dream vacation. Like, where do I sign up? I'll take that right now. Give me some solitude. For others, it might sound like a prison sentence. Like, wait, like solitary confinement? You know, just, do I have to just be here day and night? And, you know, your mind goes crazy and all that stuff. We live in a, in a crowded world. I mean, there's more people on the planet now than there ever has been, right? We have the ability to be connected constantly and instantly through TV, through media, social media, text messages, phone calls, FaceTime, video calls. But yet, our levels of loneliness and depression rise. And it's because I think as a society, we've largely forgotten what it means just to stop and to make a time and a place to rest in the Lord, to have that solitude, not for loneliness, but for the Lord. I've always liked these verses in Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32. It describes Jesus. He's doing ministry with his disciples. And then it says, Then because so many people, were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. You ever had those days? (laughs) There's so many things happening. You, like, forget to eat lunch, or you don't eat lunch until, like, 3 p.m. There's so much stuff happening. Well, that's where Jesus and his disciples found themselves. There there are so many people coming and going. They did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place place i think that's kind of the idea of what this practice of solitude means we need this time with the lord and we need it regularly we need to slow down just make time for god dallas willard is noted as saying hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and he talks about the difference between being busy and being hurried in that. Where you can have a lot of things to do but still be kind of centered and, and you know, seeking God's will. But when you're hurried, when you're kind of frantic, when you just feel like you're not even keeping up, you're not in a space to, to sit with the Lord, to seek God's will in that. We need time to be with the Lord And so developing a spiritual practice of solitude means finding that time and that space to be fully present with God. As um, Psalm 42 speaks of our soul's deepest longing, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We need to let our souls drink from the living water, which means that we need to make that time and that space to do just that loving god with all of our soul means taking that rest spending time with the living god and being in god's presence i also like the the words in psalm 84 which is also a part of our uh, our call to worship how lovely is your dwelling place lord almighty my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the lord My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Friends, there is no greater place for our souls to be than in the presence of God. Rejoicing in the Lord. Better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Now coupled with solitude, not necessarily its own thing... But coupled with solitude is the practice of silence. Richard Foster writes, without silence, there is no solitude. Though silence sometimes involves the absence of speech, it always involves the act of listening. We must understand the connection between inner solitude and inner silence because they are inseparable. When we spend time with the Lord, what that means is that we also need to cultivate a silence where we listen to God, that we sit with God. Ecclesiastes 5 says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Sometimes just being still and knowing that God is God is all you need to do. So when and where and how you practice solitude and silence, I mean, that's completely up to you, but I encourage you to be intentional about it. Don't just kind of wait for these moments to just happen by circumstance because they may not ever happen if that's the case. Maybe this time for you is in the mornings before others in the household wake up. Or maybe it's having a set place in your home where you can go and just sit with the Lord, you know, where there's not maybe the distraction of a TV. Or maybe, and this might be crazy, leave your phone outside of the room where you're not tempted to pick it up and check your email or whatever's going on. Have a time or a space dedicated to spend with the Lord. Maybe it's taking just a few moments in your car before you go into school or before you go into work. Maybe it's taking a personal retreat where you actually literally get away for a couple of days. Or, um, and Richard Foster suggested this one, maybe you try to go a whole day without speaking anything. The introverts in the room are like, yep, I can do that. <laughs> no, but, you know, just as a practice of solitude and silence, as, a, as a, almost like a Lenten practice in a way, to where you just listen, where you just, where you just are so practicing loving God with all of our soul through, through quality time where we're not distracted but where we have a time of solitude and silence with God. The second practice, and this also, also I mean, obviously should be practiced with solitude and silence, is just the practice of prayer. I mean, this should be a pretty obvious one for us. It's a way in, to, to grow in our love for God with all of our soul The most famous prayer of all time, the one that Jesus taught his disciples, the one that we call the Lord's Prayer, he begins it saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not merely about presenting all of our requests to God and say, here you go God, this is everything I want. You know, I've been good this year, made the nice list, help me out here. God isn't Santa Claus. When we go to God in prayer, we're praying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life, as you want it to be. That's what we ought to be praying. I like what Foster notes about prayer. He says, real prayer is life-creating and life-changing. To pray is to change. I wonder if we ever think about that when we pray. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. So just like in solitude, in silence, in prayer, it requires time of listening. Where we would pray that the Holy Spirit would implant in our hearts what God's will for us is. How we go forward throughout our day and our week. How God wants to use us. Not just presenting to God the things that we hope for or want. The next practice closely related to prayer, something you should do in prayer as well, and that's the practice of confession. Confession, as you know you know in our, our bulletin, it's a, it's a standard component of our worship services here. Confession and repentance is an s- essential aspect of the Christian life, and without confession, I think that pride easily gains a foothold in our lives. When we fail to To really confess our sin before God, I think we lose sight of the relevance of the cross. But here's where it's a little harder for us. I think all of us, not even just Christians, but non Christians, everyone's willing to say, Yep, I'm not perfect. And we leave our prayer of confession at that Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Lord, I'm not perfect. I know that. Do we ever name our sins? Do we ever take the time or the thought to really name our sins and confess those specifically to God? Are we even aware of them? And if not, I think that shows that there's work to be done in our hearts and in our souls. Pray for a deeper prayer life. If you struggle with that or even struggle with how to pray, pray, for, pray to God for a deeper prayer life. Be honest with God. Be real with God because nothing's going to surprise God. It's not like you're going to pray something to God and God's like, whoa, what? Just, what? You're not going to catch God off guard. But a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Being real and honest with God shows that you trust God. Withholding from God, failing to name those sins, shows a lack of trust in God. So to love God with all of your soul is to confess openly and honestly before God. To pray real and meaningful prayers, because there's grace in confession. Confession is not just about you know just degrading ourselves and telling ourselves how or showing ourselves how bad we are. There's grace. In confession, First John one nine says, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness." Psalm thirty two five. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, "I will confess my transgressions to the Lord," and you forgave the guilt of my sin. James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I wanted to also include James 4, 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I I wanted to include that one because that last word, double-minded, is is interesting. Because the literal translation of that is double-souled. That word suke is, is the last part of that. Sin has this way of fracturing our souls. As, P, as Peter says, or speaks of sinful desires which wage war against our souls, where there is sin, there's this conflict between the will of God and our own selfish will. There's a Presbyterian pastor named John Ortberg, and he says this about this this kind of uh, uh, connection between the soul and sin. He says, your soul is what integrates, what connects, what binds together your will, then your mind, and then your body. God designed us so that our choices, our thoughts, and desires, and our behavior would be in perfect harmony with each other and would be powered by an unbroken connection with God in perfect harmony with him and with all his creation. That is a well-ordered soul. But then he goes on. What sin does is break this connection with God and his love. It disintegrates one's life. That's why the basic human problem is at the soul level. Sin eventually de- destroys enjoyment, let alone meaning. It distorts My perceptions alienates my relationships, inflames my desires, and enslaves my will. Sin fractures and shatters the soul. When we go to God and confess, we're seeking healing. We're taking that shattered soul that that sin has waged war against, and we're bringing it before God to give us a new heart, to heal us from the inside out. And so we ought to develop a practice of meaningful Confession. Augustine said, the confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. Confession begins in sorrow, but it ends in joy, Foster says. And the last practice I'm going to tie in with loving God with all of our soul is the practice of submission and humility. Humility. In our love for God, we ought to submit ourselves to the Lord and live with humility. Yes, we do this through prayer. We do this through solitude. We do this through silence. We do this through confession, all the things we've named. But then we practice that with our lives, with each breath that we take, that we submit ourselves to the Lord, that we live with humility. As Jesus says in Luke 9, said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple Must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, which is actually the word soul in the Greek, will lose it. And whoever loses their soul, for me, will save it. Love requires trust. And to love God with all of our soul is to submit to God. To to completely put our trust in Jesus Christ our Lord carrying our cross. In that way, we imitate Christ's own humility and obedience to the will of God. As Paul exhorts us in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Loving God with all of our soul reflects a life that is changed by the cross of Christ that is committed to being Christ's faithful disciple. In our soul, we have this battle of wills. Our selfish will, our egocentric will, and the call of God on our life. The will of God. And that will of God calls us to love God and to love and serve our neighbors. To love God with all of our soul is to choose this day and every day with each breath that you take to live your lives in conformity and submission to the will of God. It's a tall order. It's a big call. But let us strive to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. Amen. Let us pray.